Hey everyone, and welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best creators from around the world. I'm your host, Max Bowen, and joining me now, well, this book, folks, this book has managed to creep the living crap out of me after just a few chapters, and I gotta say, a wonderful achievement. Author Todd Kiesling joins me to talk about his recently released book, Devil's Creek. Todd, welcome to the show. It is so cool to have you here. Thanks, Max. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. Oh, of course, man. Of course. Now, I guess I want to start by talking about just the intensity of this book. Like, I've definitely dealt with some pretty intense stuff so far, including an entire congregation, as you describe it, sawing through their throats and some sort of, like, mass suicide thing. So I guess I'm curious as to what went into, like, just the planning for this thing to achieve this kind of effect. Devil's Creek was a long time coming. I actually started started writing some scenes that uh, most of them, most of which didn't even make it to the final book um, back in 2007. Um, it's kind of been this, it's been gestating for a long time. Uh, it came from a series of dreams that I had. Um, there's one that is actually almost identical to the real dream uh, that happens later in the book uh, involving my, my great grandmother and uh, also a dream where I was being chased through my hometown by this desiccated old man. And I've been wanting to write about my hometown for a, for a while. Uh, and I couldn't, I didn't have the right story. I had to put it in the right context. And I mean, it, I wanted to write a horror story set in my hometown. So I, I took those dreams. I knew I wanted to work those in and every, you know, every so often I would kind of go back to it to see if I, you know, if it felt right. Um, so 2007, I wrote like three different scenes, only one of them made it into the final novel uh heavily revised of course um and i didn't go back to it until 2014 when i was working on another short story and realized hey this takes place in my hometown i could probably do something with this and so i stopped work on the short story tried to expand it wrote a couple more scenes um some of which will come up you know at the end of part two uh, with a camp campfire setting uh, that I wrote in 2014. 2014, I also went as far as to conceive like the the group of survivors of the cult, the children, and the the whole idea of it starting with the the grandparents going to try and prevent this gigantic suicide from happening. Uh, that's where all that came together. But again, I didn't feel like I was, I wasn't confident enough in my storytelling ability yet to sustain that throughout the course of a what is a very long novel uh, for me. Uh, and by you know, and by comparison to most novels published today, this is a very long story. So, 2017, I had signed with my first agent. And, you know, I had a couple of ideas to pitch to her and Devil's Creek was one of them. And I pitched it as, you know, a small town cosmic horror story. I'm going to start by saying I hope I never have a dream like that. 
because that sounds <laughs> friggin' terrifying. Thank you. Oh, it no. was. It was absolutely terrifying. Now, um, I've heard that uh, some writers do this, though. They'll, they'll keep like a pad and pen by their bed in case they have a good dream. They think, hey, this would make a great scene for my, for my story. Are you that kind of writer? No, I don't keep a pad, uh, a pad next to my, next to my bed. Um, I'm of the opinion that if it's something worth writing down, I'll remember it. So the ideas that stick are the ones that get written. Okay. I get like, you. you know, I'm, I'm never at a shortage for ideas, but a lot of them are just dumb. <laughs> so the ones that stick around that I kind of, it's kind of like putting a rock into a tumbler and you keep tumbling it over time and eventually it's smooth, it gets smooth and polished. It's kind of like that. Uh, I think about my ideas for a long time before I ever write them down. Uh. Uh, so by the time I was actually ready to write Devil's Creek in 2017, um, you know, I, it came pretty quickly. Like the first draft of that book was 178,000 words. Um, so, you know, probably like an extra hundred pages on the print edition, which is out now, you know, you probably, you're looking at like a six to 700 page book at that point. Um, after my agent got a hold of it, my editor got a hold of it, you know, I, I managed to cut about 30,000 words out of it. And I wrote that first draft in 10 months, which is ridiculously fast for me. Uh, you know, I was cranking out at least a thousand words a day. And when I normally average maybe 250 to 500, I'm a very slow writer. Normally, I feel like I'm a slow writer, at least compared to, you know, my contemporaries who, you know, it seemed like they're publishing a novel every month. Um, that's just not how I work. Uh, I, I want to make sure that the, the concept and everything is solid before I commit the time to put it on paper. So, yeah. So do you ever give yourself like deadlines or schedules for your writing or is it more like it's done when it's done? Depends on if I actually have a deadline or not. Um, you know, these days I usually have a deadline, some external deadline, uh, to work with, but, um, and I always come down to the wire <laughs> just cause, I'm usually because I'm taking that time to think about it. Like I know, like perfect example, uh, I had a deadline of January 31st for a story I just turned in uh, for an anthology that's coming up. And, you know, I've known about that deadline for about three months. But it wasn't until like two weeks ago that the story came together in my head and came together to a point where I said, OK, I only need a couple of days to write this. I've been doing this long enough that, you know, I kind of, I, I can tell like when a story is ready to go in my head and, you know, in the case of devil's Creek, it was, it was ready to go. It's just that there was a lot more story there than I for anticipated because originally I told my agent, this will probably be about 90,000 words. I mean, it ended up doubling that essentially. So devil's Creek, you know, I wrote very quickly but there was just a lot to it. <laughs> you know, it wasn't something I could just crank out in a weekend. That was, uh, you know, it definitely took a lot of time, but not in this grand scheme of things. Cool. Cool. So I imagine like the publishers are probably like, so is it ready yet? 
Is it ready yet? Is it ready yet? <laughs> Please, is it ready yet? Uh, yes and no. Oddly yeah. enough, um, like I, I try to be pretty transparent about my process on social media. So I was, I've been ta- I've been talking about the book for, you know, the entire time I was writing it, uh, posting excerpts and stuff like that, just to kind of see if, if people were interested, and. It had a double, you know, there was a double-edged sword to that. It ended up getting, you know, people were aware of it long before it ever came out. People were hyped for it. And there's the double-edged sword because I feel like it got overhyped to a point where there was no possible way it could live up to people's expectations. (laughs) So there were, uh, you know, some, you know, some some critical, critical responses to it, which were totally fair. Uh, the first time it first time it it came out, um, you know that was uh, back in 2020. This new edition that just got uh, released is through Cemetery Dance. Um, the original publisher went out of business, so it was out of print for about a year. But no, uh, to answer your question, though, there were publishers aware of it. There were publishers, smaller presses were interested in it before it was ever done. Um, of course, you know. When I gave it to my agent, we, you know, she took it to the the larger publishers in New York who haven't seen a, a a small town horror novel in the vein of like, you know, stuff that came out in the seventies and eighties since the seventies and eighties. Uh, so they were all just like, we don't see why this has to be any longer than a hundred thousand words, and. To me, that was the tell that, okay, then I don't want you publishing this book. I needed a publisher who was going to appreciate where it was coming from and appreciate what I was trying to do with it. Yeah. So uh, it was, it was in, in hindsight, it was always destined for a small press. Yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> I get you. I get you. So, uh, now, um, you mentioned earlier about this being available through uh, Cemetery Dance, and certainly we've talked about them a lot in many, many interviews. How'd you come to their attention? Uh, so, the editor of their paperback and ebook line, Kevin Lucia, he's someone I've known for a long time, just in, you know, in the industry. And he had read Devil's Creek when it came out. And this is before he worked for Cemetery Dance, anything like that. And so last year, when the former publisher closed its doors abruptly, we were all down in Virginia at uh, AuthorCon the weekend. That And like, I actually got to witness a publisher closing its doors in real time. And there were so many of its authors there in the same room and everybody was just like, God damn it. (laughs) You know, uh, Kevin was there and he had just, you know, started working with cemetery dance. And, you know, I kind of stepped out of the the ballroom where they had all the vendors and everybody set up. I had stepped out to kind of, you know, collect myself because I was pretty upset. You know, I went back inside and Kevin walked up to me, put his arm around me, and he said, you'll have a home with Cemetery Dance if you want it. There was there wasn't another opportunity on the table. And with Kevin's blessing, you know, we pursued that. That didn't work out. So when it didn't, I was, you know, 
on the phone with Kevin, like, let's do it. Let's make this happen. And, uh, I had already, I had already, uh, been shopping my, my next story collection and, you know, cemetery dads actually ended up picking up that one as well. So that's kind of how that cemetery dance happened. It, it was right place, right time sort of thing. Um, but I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, even though it sucked at the time going through that, I'm grateful that things worked out the way they did. Oh yeah. It's definitely in a better place. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I can only, I can only imagine to find out that like you think it's all set, your book's going to get published and all of a sudden, well, it's almost now. What do I do? What do I do with myself? Yeah. Yeah. It was uh pretty nerve wracking. Um, you know, it, it had been out. I mean, by that point it had been out two years and was doing, it was doing consistently well. Like, it's not like it was just wasn't selling. Like it was consistently selling, you know, the royalty checks were nice paying my mortgage a few times. That was great. Hmm. And then nothing <laughs> it uh, just stops uh, and then you know we had to you know then i had to battle the former publisher to get paid and everybody did and that was just a whole mess and uh yeah but no it's here it's out it's a stoker nominee and um you know i'm proud of it yeah now is uh the stoker award is that like one of the highest in in the horror genre yeah uh, Bram Stoker Awards is a, a an award presented by the Horror Writers Association. Um, it's the highest in the horror world, uh, at least that I'm aware of. Um, and uh, it was nominated for a Superior Achievement in a Novel 2020 uh, alongside uh, Josh Mallerman, Stephen Graham Jones. Um, I forget who else was nominated. Uh, Sylvia Moreno Garcia uh, for Mexican Gothic. That was also nominated. Mm. Uh, so it was kind of like you have all these heavy hitters and then you have me and it's like one of these things is not like the others. Uh, so it was kind of cool. Um, you know, like I had no expectation of winning. Um, you know, it it was just, it really was just an honor to be nominated. And that's all I really wanted was a nomination. Cause now I can put that on my byline for the rest of my life, you know, Ram Stoker award finalist. There you go. Yeah. It's, yeah. you know, nice little thing to have on the old, uh, uh, resume to say, you know, yeah. Nominee yeah for the, for the, uh, the Bram Stoker, just the biggest award in horror writing. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well then let's talk about the story uh, that earned this nomination. So, this takes place near the town of, I'm probably bungling this one, uh, uh, but uh, Stouford, Kentucky? Stouford. Uh, Stouford. I knew I was going to get it wrong. <laughs> I knew I was going to get this one wrong. All right. Well, <laughs> this is the air, and this is a town of Devil's Creek. Um, it used to be the home of the Lord's Church of Holy Voices, and it's a death cult because that's great which Jacob Masters presides over, and he's got the whole place basically under his thumb, except for uh, for a group called the Stouffert Six. They are, the, uh, these are basically were children who kind of grew up amidst this cult. They rise up, and they're able to sort of escape it. And uh, then, you know, time passes. We focus on this one member, uh, Jack Tremley. 
He's, uh, you know, just kind of moving on, basically. When his grandfather dies, he returns to, to settle uh, her estate, and things happen. Bad things happen. How do you go about creating a death cult? I want to ask that question. <laughs> because because you did a really good job creating a death cult, sir. Very meticulously. <laughs> no, um, years and years of careful planning. Uh, so when I got serious about writing the story, I did some research into um into jim jones but in i i watched a couple of documentaries and you know fun note kids out there don't don't watch a documentary about jim jones on you know at the start of your saturday it will ruin your weekend uh you know i watched that and i also kind of just I also knew from growing up in a Southern Baptist church kind of how the use of language can, you know, the use of repetitive language can almost like rewire someone's brain. And that's always fascinated me how one person can convince a whole group of people to essentially just give up their lives and devote a hundred percent of everything, you know, their income, their time, their faith, their, their, you know, their identity to this person, which is a figurehead for a much bigger thing. Um, so aside from Jim Jones, I, I also just kind of look, you know, paid attention to the televangelist of our day, uh, Joel Osteen being the primary one. I actually tweeted at him a few weeks ago and offered to send him a copy of the book. It's the least I could do for the inspiration. He did not respond, unfortunately. I can't imagine why not. So, you know, I looked at that. I looked at the the language dynamic. I looked at, you know, I also just kind of played around with the what if scenarios. Like, well, what if Jim Jones had actually been like backed by an actual entity and not just you know not he wasn't just ripping people off and you know flying high on drugs all the time but he actually was hearing the voice of something else dictating to him what he should do and that that for me was very interesting because I, i'm a huge cosmic horror nerd and I had long wanted to kind of create my own pantheon that was adjacent to Lovecraft, but set it away from New England, <laughs> you know, and I, you know, and I wanted to see that in the South. And so I grew up hearing about Devil's Creek. It's a real place. Uh, yeah, it's a Devil's Creek is a real place. Um so the, the real town that Stafford is based on is Corbin, Kentucky. Uh, southeastern Kentucky, Devil's Creek is about 15 miles or so outside of town. It is in literally in the middle of a forest. And there was at one point an actual church out there. And I grew up hearing stories about this church being burned down. And the stories were always different. Supposedly Satanists burned it down. Supposedly, you know, it was an accident or it was arson or whatever. And I took that 
And the fact that I couldn't get a concrete story because no one's left alive who knows the real story. Uh, and that kind of melded it together. That became my location of this ancient evil. And that's why people are drawn to it. That's why a church is built out there because there's this corruptible for, you know, corrupting force that is influencing minds and pulling and gathering, you know, little avatars to act on its behalf. You put all that in a pot and you stir it up. And what you get is, you know, a death cult of people who think that their pastor speaks to a living God, not from above, but from within the earth. And, uh, they're willing to do anything for him, including die. And they've already given up their their belongings. They've already given up their homes. They have given up their lives and settled in a compound out in this forest, all in devotion to something that they can't see but can feel. And, you know, it, it all kind of, you know, by that point, it had, it had grown its, a pair of legs and was walking on its own. I love that this is at least partially based on a true story, and I feel like that could be your next book. You know, horror writer writes a horror novel about something that happened, and then it happens for real or something like that. <laughs> uh, no, I think there are other writers out there who could probably do that story better justice than, than yeah. I. And um, it's probably been, you know, done a lot, too. Actually, it's, yeah. you talk about this place, Hell's, uh, rather, uh, Devil's Creek being like a real thing. I'm not surprised because near me is a river uh, is a road called Purgatory Road. I kid you not, it's actually what it's called. And I've driven along a road called um uh the Hell Road. So yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not really surprised that someone would name something this. Yeah. You know, growing up it was the place where kids went out to to party, do drugs, get drunk, that sort of thing. And you always heard stories about weird shit that would happen out there because the, the church foundation is still there and there's the rem remnants of an old cemetery out there. So, you know, a lot of bad energy, what have you is kind of floating around and, um, you know, you'd hear the story about, oh, you know, we, I heard if you drive your car in a circle around the old foundation, it's, if you get to this point, your engine will sputter and die. And there's going to be a, somebody in the tree line watching you, you know, it's who knows, you know, I, I actually have never been there in person. I wouldn't um, want to go I there was, in person. I was forbidden from going by my, my mother who threatened to take my keys away. And, you know, of course, I'm, you know, being a person with a, you know, speculative mind, I'm asking, well, so what, why, like, tell me why, give me a concrete reason why I should not go if, if there's nothing there. And she told me like the one time she was out there, there was literally nothing. It was a void that there were no birds, no insects, there was no wind, the trees, you know, the tree the the limbs and the trees weren't blowing you know it was just silence see that and makes me want to check it out even more right um you know i don't live in kentucky anymore otherwise i probably would if i had a good group of people to go with cuz the area is kind of sketchy so uh 
probably not a place you go alone after dark for sure. But yeah, it's it's a real place. Uh, there's a picture at in the beginning of the book of the street sign that's actually the real street sign. Uh, my wife took that photo. Uh, the map in the book of the town of Stafford and its surrounding area is quite literally Corbin, Kentucky, and its surrounding area. Um, so, you know, it, it's very much a real place the only reason i changed the name is because i had to take some liberties with geography and i also changed the names of some businesses so i wouldn't get sued that's important so let's talk about uh jacob masters uh he's uh the son of a preacher but he of course he's gone in a very different direction and one of the things that i really loved about the character as much as he's an absolute bastard and a monster in every sense of the word is that control you know, he mm-hmm. very much reminded me, like uh, like you said, of the uh, the televangelists, the way he had everyone just doing whatever he said. And this one goes pretty far in terms of certain story elements. Like it's very, very, very strongly implied that there is child rape in this book. Yes, um, no bones about it. It happens clearly. What was the reason for including this stuff? And as sort of a follow-up question, was there something that you just wouldn't touch? So the implied uh, child abuse, the implied child rape and incest uh, was, you know, that was a conscious decision. Um, Basically, I needed Jacob to be viler than vile okay i needed him to be absolutely corrupted like he is the epitome of corruption in the universe of this story you know he can't he he's a minister he's it's it's the antithesis of everything he would and a younger version of him you know the antithesis of all he stands for so i basically wanted there to be this you know by the when you meet jake you know jacob masters he is hardly human like he's basically a a shell and everything inside him is being you know he's essentially a puppet so the the idea of this corruption the essence of this cosmic being for example you know it I've described it as something that, you know, basically corrupts space and time. It's corrosive to a person's spirit and will. Uh, It feeds on our suffering. And it will do anything to perpetuate that suffering. So I took a well, you know, a well-regarded person who had good intentions and then imagined him as this corrupting, you know, this corrupted sock puppet, essentially. And I imagined that, you know, you know, yeah, he's going to father several children with different women. What if he did that for a purpose? Like, what if he basically raised them like, you know, had, you know, sired them to be cattle to feed his, you know, to feed his God 
because this is what his God wants. His God wants innocence corrupted, you know, from purity. And thinking along those lines, like, well, you know, it makes sense that this figure, this corruptive, you know, who's been corrupted by this, you know, horrible entity would then for lack of a better term, and I apologize if this is insensitive, but uh, tenderize them. You know, tenderize them for the eventual meal they're going to become. And that's where a lot of the, the child abuse aspect came into it. But it also came from just looking up and researching religious extremism. You know, if you look at some of the, you know, I'm not, and I'm not trying to call out one specific faith, but there, you know, there are offshoots of certain mainstream religions that believe in, you know, multiple wives, multiple children. And those children are the ones who escape that situation will report that almost universally they're all abused in some way. And I think that that's just a, that comes from one person having too much power. Like, I think that you could probably make a case for it being the whole thing, being a metaphor for man's inability to handle excessive power. Like it always corrupts. Uh, so, you know, even though, you know, I tried to treat it delicately in the story and not like shove your face in it because I, you know, I myself, I, I don't want to see that, you know, it's disgusting to me. Um, but I also had to handle it delicately, but also recognize that, yes, this is something that's happened. This is something that he's done. He's a terrible person. And you need to know how far he's been corrupted. And that is there to show how corrupted he's become. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, it does. And and really, we see that right off the bat. Like, this guy is a complete piece of shit. But yeah. Dan is made for a great villain. Thank you. Yeah. What do you think makes a good horror villain? So, I can't. So, I can't talk about this in the book because you haven't read it yet and it's a huge spoiler okay but so when i say this it's going to sound kind of weird considering i've already established everything i just said about this character <laughs> um a good villain needs to have some level of sympathy from the reader hmm. the good a good villain the thing, the thing that's important to remember from a writing standpoint is that every every villain's the hero of their story. The villain thinks they're doing something right, even if it's wrong in a lot of people's eyes. So, there's a Jacob Masters is as we as we know him in the story, as we meet him, and as he, you know, his everything his actions and everything are have vast echoes across the rest of the story the rest of the book you know the, the whole book is under his shadow but 
there comes a point near the end of the book where I shine a light on who he was before this happened and what led him to Devil's Creek in the first place, what led his father to Devil's Creek in the first place. And this is where we circle back around on it being based on truth. There's that whole section, and readers will recognize it when they get there. That whole section touches on uh, some very real events that happened in my hometown back in the turn of the 20th century uh, involving um, basically uh, a race riot. Uh, Something that is quite, you know, disgusting. It's something that my hometown has never really faced or it's not talked about. Um, but it's well known in other communities what happened. And, uh, you know, there's a scene in Devil's Creek where the young Jack, well, Jack is, re- you know, re- recalling a memory of driving downtown with his great grandmother, with his grandmother, excuse me, and seeing a clan rally on the steps of the you know, town hall. That really happened. I saw that. I was maybe five years old. Um, you know, my hometown was known as a sundown town for a long, long time. And it's never really come to terms with that. And I wanted to turn a mirror to the town a little bit. And that kind of became entwined with Jacob's origin story. So not excusing what he does in the book, absolutely not, but I do try to shine a light on you know the the why of everything a little bit, or at least what leads him to a certain point, and then from there he's kind of you know corrupted and then and becomes who we see at the start. All right, let's talk about then Jack um. What is his role in the book, aside from you know being a, uh, a one of a, one of the six to escape? So Jack is he's our main character. Mm-hmm. Um, he is a successful artist. Jack, in a lot of ways, is uh, a pigment of who I imagine I would be if my life had taken a different course, uh, because I you know. By day, I'm I'm a graphic designer. So, you know, that's what pays the bills. So I always had this interest in art. And once upon a time, I was going to go to art school to major in graphic design. But 17 years old, I wrote a novel and everybody loved it. So I'm like, huh, maybe I should pursue writing instead. And then I, you know, my life took this other, you know, other turn. And here we are. Um, I still do what, you know, I would have gone to school to do. Uh, but I also have the writing, which is kind of the, my main focus still. And so I kind of imagined, well, what if I had taken that other path? And, you know, that was the basis for Jack, but then I had to put Jack in the context of the events that have already happened in the story with the cult and, you know, his grandparents saving him and, 
from that and the ridicule he would face being part of a you know a group of survivors after trying to reintegrate himself into the society of this town so jack is a very haunted person he's you know he's in therapy he's had some success he's channeled all of his demons into his artwork and it's made him a very you know a very successful person but at the end of the day he's still haunted by that those actions and those events and memories and a lot of it he's convinced himself you know were dreams but that's not really the case it's you know things that actually happen he's also as soon as he could he severed ties with his hometown he moved away went to art school became successful and he's kept in touch with his grandmother and at the start of the book uh at the beginning well after part one uh he's returning back to stafford for the first time uh to settle his grandmother's estate because she's passed away and that's kind of what kicks off him you know his returning doesn't really cause things to happen it's just a circumstance that leads all of the Stafford six being back together again uh very much has echoes of stephen king's it um one of my favorite horror horror novels ever uh though i will say that salem's lot was probably the bigger influence now i um i, I was uh checking your website and i saw that if i'm if i'm counting things right this is now your eighth book i'm curious yeah after all this time does the process of you know coming with the ideas and creating them and crafting the story does it get easier no <laughs> good no. answer i like that I like uh that. i mean for me it doesn't yeah. uh you know i i have friends in the industry who crank out books constantly and that's great i like to give myself time between projects to kind of collect myself because usually toward the end of writing a book i'm a hundred percent you know invested i want to see it to the end and it's emotionally draining uh you know i'm someone who who struggles with anxiety and depression so that sort of focus takes a lot out of me so i like to give myself time between projects so i can kind of recenter myself me saying no it doesn't get easier is partially in jest i mean i know what i'm doing at this point i kind of know understand what my own process is i understand my own habits and faults and you know everything else the story kind of just you know grows uh, you know and i follow along um but at the same time i mean it's it can be difficult for me at least to get back into that mindset if i take too long between projects it's kind of like you know working out lifting weights if you haven't lifted in a long time it's your muscles are going to be rusty you're going to be sore you're going to you know you're going to feel it the next day so you know it, it's difficult in that regard but once you kind of get find the groove again it's just like riding a bike now i read at the beginning of the book you dedicated this to uh, frank michaels errington and matt mulgard uh, who are these people and why did you want to dedicate the book to them? So Matt Mulgard was the founder of horror novel reviews back in the late aughts. 
maybe 2010, 2011. I don't remember exactly when. And he was one of these few independent review sites that was actually accepting books for you know consideration of a review so i sent him my first two novels and you know that was that and he came back and he you know he was very kind to me he reviewed my books he was just a good person a good heart and uh, i never got to meet him per in person but uh you know i got to know him over the years um still i still talk to his his mother bettina from time to time on facebook very sweet lady Matt passed away a few years ago, uh, unexpectedly. And, uh, as I finished the book and everything, he was in the back of my mind because he, this devil's Creek is more along the lines of something he would like to, he would have liked to have read. He would have been all over it. He would have, you know, loved it. It's got the right amount of blood and guts and you know icky stuff while also having, you know, some depth to it and everything. And, so yeah, it seemed right to dedicate it to him. Same goes for uh, Frank Arrington. Uh, he was a friend of mine, um, also a book reviewer. And he was uh, basically in stage three or stage four kidney failure. Um, he was an older man. And uh, he kept, couldn't get a donor. He could not find a donor because of his age and circumstances. And... Uh, you know, he we're, we were part of the same um horror writers association chapter and one one time he asked if he could read the book if he could read the first draft and i said well you know it's kind of unorthodox don't you want to wait till it's been edited and everything and he's like yeah but i don't know how much longer i have so in 2018 two years before the book ever saw the light of day he uh he read it and he wrote a review for it and he sent it to me and uh he passed away uh about a year later um from a complication after a procedure in the hospital and um it made sense to dedicate it to him too because he was very kind in his review he was always very kind to me with his reviews and uh he was a good friend and i miss him dearly i miss them both so yeah, the the night before uh, Devil's Creek was published the first time, I posted his uh, his original review on my website, and uh, I went back to that actually the night before it was re-released to Cemetery Dance just to kind of revisit it. At the risk of becoming emotional, I'm going to stop there with that. That's all right. Okay. No, I'm sorry. Really, I'm 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 sorry that that happened. I mean. Sound these both sound like two really wonderful people, and uh, certainly, certainly worthy of the honor of being of having the book dedicated to them. It it makes sense. It really does. Yeah, they were huge fans of the genre, champions of the genre, I would say, and they were also incredibly supportive for young writers who were trying to find their foothold in the industry. Mm-hmm. And they gave everybody an equal shot, which is not common these days. No, it is not. It really isn't. So now this book has been out at the time of this recording, little under a month. When this happens, when you put out the book, do you just take a break from any kind of writing? No. <laughs> I mean, it's 
Yeah, it's something you celebrate and you try to promote it alongside the publisher and everything. But no, because usually by the time the book comes out, you've already got two or three projects down. Like I'm already, you know, I'm in the process of, you know, searching for a new agent and pitching a a new novel that I finished last year. I'm 30,000 words into the follow up to Devil's Creek right now. And so no the the work always continues you know i'm a firm believer that you don't rest on your laurels when it comes to stuff like that because you know yeah it's it's a it's a milestone in your career it's a milestone of success but at the you know but it's also a book that i stopped thinking about actively years ago (laughs) you know so my mind is over here now working on this other stuff to know that the work doesn't really stop i mean you give yourself a you know a couple of days to kind of revel in the success of it or or what have you but you know always looking forward and you mentioned uh just a second ago there's a sequel to this book not a sequel okay i'm not going to call it a sequel it it's a follow-up in that it takes place in the same universe I actually have several several shorter stories that all take place in the Devil's Creek universe. Oh, okay. Um, matter of fact, I keep meaning to put together a, a list for my website. I actually just redid my website, so it's kind of nuts right now. But um, uh, my novella Scanlines, which is tonally entirely different from Devil's Creek, takes place in Stafford, Kentucky in the late 90s. Oh, my novella, The Final Reconciliation, about a progressive metal band uh, and their their final album. That band, the Yellow Kings, is referenced in Devil's Creek because Stafford is their hometown. Uh, I have other short fiction that kind of toys with the same ideas. They're set in the South. The first story in my new collection that comes out this summer from Cemetery Dance uh, is called Midnight in the Southland. And that actually references a character, not by name, but a character in Devil's Creek. Uh, So they all kind of exist in the same universe. So and the book that I'm working on now uh, is tentatively titled Revelation Road. And it actually starts in Detroit, Michigan. And the whole thing is kind of like a, a... a chase story. Um, basically the main character's girlfriend is kidnapped by, uh, some really gnarly looking guys kind of akin to the biker gang from Mandy and like all like wrapped in barbed wire and shit. And so the main character steals her drug dealer's car, which is a very nice Dodge challenger. That's been, you know, souped up and everything a la vanishing point and takes off after them and it's going to it ends in kentucky and there's a whole reason for that uh eastern kentucky a little bit farther into the mountains of appalachia and uh yeah it's i'm pitching it as vanishing point meets the texas chainsaw massacre um hoping that it's a lot faster paced it's not a slow burn at all it's a you know the shot of adrenaline from start to finish that's the that's what i'm going for anyway cool now how'd you come about having this like shared universe for your books was that kind of planned out 
not planned. It was totally organic. And uh, writing Devil's Creek made me realize that some of these other stories that I'd written set in the South all kind of exist in the same universe. Um, earliest story being The Harbinger, which um, involves a doll company in a small West Virginia town and something that they unearth in the coal mine there. That was that has a small object that comes into play in Devil's Creek toward the end. Well, all the way through, actually. Uh, I can't really say because I don't want to spoil it for anybody. All right, all right. But, uh, yeah, so they all kind of exist. Like, it wasn't intentional. Like, uh, it just happened that way. So... I realized, though, after after making the connection that they, okay, these are actually adjacent to each other, um, that it would be fun to kind of cultivate this sandbox a little bit. And, I mean, it's no different than what Stephen King has done with Maine and, you know, in New England as a whole. And, you know, I'm a huge King fan, always have been, so it seemed like the right, the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we are coming down to the end of the episode, but before we go, folks, we're going to even give you guys a little, a little peek, a little excerpt from this story read by the author himself. Uh, basically, give you guys a taste of what you're in for when you check this book out. So, Todd, take it away. All right. Thank you. Um, so, I'm just going to read the first chapter. It's kind of hits the ground running and give you an idea of what you're in for. I think. A little bit of context with what we've been talking about tonight. And this is chapter one of Devil's Creek. The sun hung low along the western horizon, painting the forest with fractured orange flames. And Imogene Tremley knew in her heart the minister would be dead before it rose again. She prayed for this day, prayed the others would see the light of reason, and finally their time had come. In a past life, She would have said her Lord had seen to it, but now she wasn't so sure. These days, she wasn't sure what was listening to those prayers she sent up into the dark, whispered in her most vulnerable moments. After the horror she witnessed at the Lord's Church of Holy Voices, Imogene could no longer say with complete faith that her God was benign. Answered prayers? No. All she knew today was fortune had seen fit to smile upon her, and the others had finally gathered the courage to stand with her against Father Jacob. Her only fear was they'd waited too long to act, and the children of Jacob's infernal community were beyond saving. The car shuddered and lurched as they drove over a pothole. Henry Pruitt took the winding curves of Devil's Creek Road at full speed, squealing tires and spitting up gravel in their wake. Jerry Tate leaned forward in from the back seat. His face was pale, his lips drawn into a grim frown. Christ, Henry, we want to get there in one piece, you know? Henry drenched, clenched his teeth, white-knuckling the steering wheel as they took another curve in the road. Jerry sat back in a huff, clutching the back of Henry's seat. Headlights flashed in the rear view, piercing the evening gloom. Maggie Green followed several yards back in her rusted-out Ford pickup, and Roger Billings closed the rear in his old Dodge. Together, their motorcade snaked its way through the brush of Daniel Boone National Forest, tearing up the old access road with demonic fury 
as they sped toward their fate. Imogene glanced over her shoulder at the back seat. Jerry looked like he might vomit. Gage Tiptree met her stare but said nothing. Despite Jerry's protests, they both knew no matter how fast Henry drove, it wasn't fast enough. I still think we should have gone to the cops. At least then we wouldn't be going in alone. Henry spoke flatly, his voice nothing more than air forced through corn husks. He already tried and it got us nowhere. They're just as afraid of him as we are. It's us or no one. Silence fell over them as the Toyota rattled along the gravel road. Deep down, Imogene knew Jerry was right. They should have gone to the police one last time. But there was also truth in Henry's words as well. How many times had they tried calling attention to Father Jacob's nightly activities? How many anonymous reports of child abuse and rape would it take before the police would finally act? Too long, Imogene thought. Too long, and a handful of dead children. Thoughts of her grandson, Jackie, puh, propped up on Father Jacob's stone altar made her stomach twist in knots. She blinked away the grisly image and focused on the road ahead as her mind wandered back to all the things she could have done to avoid this outcome. If only she'd opened her eyes sooner, maybe then she wouldn't have lost her daughter to Jacob's brainwashing. Imogene closed her eyes and scolded herself. What's done is done. You can't save Lara, but maybe you can save little Jackie. Henry slowed the car to a stop as they neared the turnabout. Two muddy ruts cut through a narrow clearing in the woods before disappearing around the bend several years back. There, the gravel road was consumed by the overgrowth, turning back travelers for as long as any of them could remember. Those who belonged here, however, knew of another path. Imogene opened her eyes. The trailhead beckoned to them like a gaping mouth, waiting to swallow them all. Half a mile down, the trail dipped into a gully where the creek trickled its way toward the Cumberland River. A wooden footbridge they'd built years before would carry them to the other side. From there, any traveler would find a series of homes, nothing more than cardboard and sheet metal shacks. They had all lived in those homes at one point or another, selling off their belongings for the sake of Jacob's vision, trading their lives of privilege and sin for those of piety and reverence. Beyond the village, the forest gave way to a clearing, and rising from its center was Calvary Hill. The heart of Jacob Master's religious community sat atop Calvary, a one-room whitewashed church with a black steeple. And down in the pit below, deep in the heart of that blighted land, they would find the bastard. Imogene's heart raced. She reached into her purse and pulled out her daddy's revolver amazed by how such a small thing could bear such weight, hoping her daddy's lessons wouldn't fail her now. Henry parked the car and shut off the engine. He popped the trunk and turned to the men in the back seat. I won't blame either of you boys if you want to back out now. Jerry and Gage remained silent, studying Henry's face. They nodded to one another, a tacit agreement between old friends that wasn't lost on Imogene. See it through. Imogene placed her daddy's revolver in her lap, absently tracing her finger along the loaded cylinders. Jacob took my Lara from me, and I didn't do nothing because he told me it was God's will. 
I'm not going to make the same mistake with my grandson. He can't have him. He can't have any of those children. We're all they've got now. If I meet my maker tonight, I'll do it knowing I did what I could to make things right. Her words clung to the air between them, resonating like church bells. They all knew Henry Pruitt's offer to turn back was an empty one. None of them could back out now, even if they wanted to. Not after all they'd let ha- see, all they'd let happen. Tonight, they would atone for their sins, one way or another. Imogene opened the door and broke the silence. The sound of low, guttural chants sent her heart into her throat. Nestled between each lurching incantation were the shrill calls of children in song. It's begun, she whispered. The men climbed out of the truck. Henry looked back at her, frowning. He understood this was their burden and theirs alone. Henry retrieved his shotgun and chambered around. Then let's end it. That's the end of chapter one. And trust me, folks, it, it only goes downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean it in a good way. In a very, very good way. Ah, well, Todd, man, we have come to the close of the show, man. It has been so cool talking to you. And, uh, you know, this book is definitely going to get finished. And I really can't wait to just dive uh, back into it. Um, but Thank you. Hey, you're very welcome. And for the folks at home, you go to Todd Kiesling, uh, K-E-I-S. L-E-N-G.com. You can find everything there, of course. Get your copy of Devil's Creek. Get your copy of all those books. And, of course, as we always ask, leave reviews. It's yes, you, please. It takes you five seconds, and it's very important. Follow his socials, of course. Interact that way, too. It's all part of the part of the process of, you know, bringing everyone up and spreading the great work of these creators for everyone else. And, uh, Todd, definitely looking forward to the next conversation for the next book. Thanks, man. I'm looking forward to it, too. Hey, guys, what's going on? This is Brian Murphy from One Time Mountain, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout with Max Bowen. Rock on. And that'll bring this episode to a close. You can follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. Get at me at citywidemax.yahoo.com and check the show out wherever you find your favorite podcast, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now, and I'll see you next time.